0: 1 corinthians uh, chapter 11 verses 2 to 16 now i commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the, the traditions even as i delivered them to you but i want you to understand that the head of every man is christ the head of a wife is her husband and the head of christ is god every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God.
1: I want to say right up front that I'm aware that reading, that passage, Well, it may well have raised a lot of questions and some hackles. This is a a part of the Bible, a passage in the Bible uh, that is difficult. Uh, The reason why, if you look on the back of the handout, um, you won't see my usual kind of outline. It will come up on screen, but it's because I've been continuing to grapple with the passage. Some passages in the Bible are difficult to understand, there are some details that are thorny. What does that quite mean? Other passages in the Bible are difficult to accept from our cultural standpoint. We think, oh, that's not what I would have said if I'd written the Bible. This passage is a bit of both. It's challenging. It challenges our brains, our minds. We're going to have to work a bit harder tonight than sometimes on a Sunday evening sermon. And it will challenge our hearts and our wills as to whether our Creator knows the good for us. Whether our Creator is good. So we always need God's help as We come to his word, but perhaps especially tonight, um, on these topics controversial in our culture, and with some of these particular verses, um, I'll tell you right up front, in case you're distracted by it, if you want to know what because of the angels means, I'm not going to say up here, you have to ask me, because I don't actually know. I think there's four or five possible options, and I can't um, tell away from the Bible to tell between them, so feel free to ask me afterwards, but we're not going to spend any time on that. Let me lead us in prayer. I know we've prayed in song, but let me lead us in prayer as we turn to God's word. Our Father in heaven, creator of all things, help us now to understand what you're saying in this part of your good and loving word, and open our eyes to your goodness in creation and how it reflects your goodness in yourself. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our topic tonight does involve men and women, uh, I think particularly husbands and wives as we go through, and what you do with your head. And I'm aware if you've just started coming to church or you're looking into Christianity, if this is the first sermon at Chalmers you've heard, you may well be wondering what on earth is this? I mean, what have I kind of stepped into? Who are these people? Have I kind of come into a 1950s time warp where it suddenly seems like kind of sexism or domineering of men is seen as okay? What kind of church is this? The answer to that is, is not that we think domineering sexism is okay. I hope that becomes really clear as we work our way through this passage. The answer to what kind of church is this that you've come into is that we are a church that believes every word of the Bible is a word from God for us. What that means is when we get to a difficult bit, we don't skip over it. That is, the way we do our preaching isn't, I decide what topics I'd like to talk on and then pick the bits of the Bible that would say that. No, we just work through books of the Bible, take God's word on its own terms. He sets the agenda of the topics we cover. And so tonight... Uh, having finished 1 Corinthians 8 to10 last term, well tonight we begin a series in 1 Corinthians 11 to 14 on the way to Easter in the evenings, and we 'll do chapters 15 and 16 in the mornings just before Easter. And tonight, that means we have head coverings and the differences between men and women. Now this passage has produced a huge amount of discussion about how it applies, both kind of what was going on originally, how it applied originally, and how it applies now um, uh, it's not easy, and there are there are kind of two key questions I think we need to get our heads around just at the outset. Um, let's see if our, if um, the uh, slides come up. Yes, good start. Oh, maybe I'm going backwards. Is that possible? Yes, here we go. Okay. So the issue is, what are you doing to your head? Sorry, when the words are too small to read. Um, the first question is this. I wonder if you're already asking this in your head. Is this just cultural? and specific to the particular context? Is it just cultural, what's going on here, this passage? Or is it all transcultural? That is, is it it kind of binding on us to obey this literally in 21st century Edinburgh? Those are important questions, because if it's the first one, well, we can safely ignore it and move on. If it's the second one, we do need to obey it and get our headgear right. Always we're coming to God's Word, seeking for it to change us, seeking to repent in light of God's voice. So is it all just cultural, or is it all transcultural? The reality is with God's Word that God is always speaking to a particular time and place, a particular culture, for the church at all times and places. To put that really simply, God spoke to them then for Us now, always when we're coming to a passage, we're having to think um, what what, uh, transcultural principles are here which apply to us today. It's worth saying, just up there, when I say a bit literally, sorting out your headwear slash your hairstyle, one of the challenges here is understanding exactly what it was that was covering the women's heads in this passage That's the first signal that it may actually be kind of applying it directly into our culture may be a challenge. Though there are certainly lasting principles, big transcultural points of theology and of who humanity are as men and women, which absolutely will apply to us today. Let me just show you in this passage that there are... There's the issue of kind of social conventions and the issue of transcultural theology. Both are going on in the passage. So firstly, just social conventions. Please do have your Bible open. The church ones are page 958. Um, Follow with me, that will help a lot. Um, I think in lots of ways, this passage is marked as a passage uh, to do with uh, public scandal or social shame the kind of social shame of inherent in flouting social conventions. Um, So verses 4 and 5 are going to talk about dishonor, what dishonors someone's head. Verse 6 talks about what's disgraceful for a wife. Verse 14, what's disgraceful for a man. Verses 7 and 15 are about glory. Verse 13 is about what's proper. All of that is the language of shame and honor. It's the language of social scandal, of flouting conventions. See, it seems there was a real danger of uh, men and women in the church in Corinth sending the wrong message by what they were doing in terms of their headwear. Given that that it gets more airtime in this passage, it, it does seem like it was especially the wives in the church who were foregoing a particular form of head covering, whether a hairstyle or a veil or um, a a kind of scarf over their hair, foregoing that kind of head covering, which in effect sent a scandalous message to the culture. There were particular social signals attached to that item. And so there is in this passage a real concern with causing offence, scandal or shame socially, Now, we shouldn't be that surprised that that would be on Paul's mind. I know it was before Christmas. Do you remember chapter 10, verse 32? Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God. Uh, The the risk of uh, offending people culturally was one of the things on Paul's mind. If that was the only thing on Paul's mind... Well, then the way to apply the passage today would just be to think, well, what, what does our culture find offensive? Let's make sure we don't do that. But have a look back at chapter 10, verse 31. Because Paul's bottom line wasn't actually what will people think. Paul's bottom line was, is what will God think. Verse 31 of chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. So actually, Paul, yes, he wants to minimize offense to the culture around him because he wants to have every opportunity to take one step forwards with the good news of Jesus. But his bottom line is, how do I glorify God? How do I glorify the creator who made me, for whom I'm made? How do I glorify him even as I shake Uh, even even as I seek to share the good news in a minimally offensive way to the culture around. And just as I was able to take us through the passage and and find lots of words about shame and honor and scandal, glory, proper, what's proper, Um, as you also look through the passage, again, you can see that at points, Paul is stepping back to to say, what would God say about this? What is God like? How did God make the universe? Let me show you that. Verse Three it talks about uh, who the head of a man is, who the head of the wife is, and then says, the head of Christ, end of verse 3, the head of Christ is God. So something about this issue reflects God's nature, the relationship between Christ the Son and God the Father. Flick onto, or your eyes on to verses 7 to 9, where Paul The reason why we read Genesis 1 and 2 is because Paul is turning to Genesis 1 and 2 in his argument in verses 7 to 9. We're not going to go to him just now, but he's appealing to the order in which Adam and Eve were made. He's appealing to the reason why Eve was made, according to the Genesis narrative. That is, he's not just worried about what the city will think. He's worried about what God will think. God, who has a good blueprint, for his creation, a good blueprint for men and women, for husbands and wives. That is to say, to sum up this initial bit, while the type of headwear and the signals it sent might be very specific culturally, the theological issues that raises in terms of men and women are of transcultural importance. They'll touch on who God is in himself. How is the Trinity patterned in the relationship between Father and Son? They'll touch on who are we as human beings? Who are we for? Why are we men and women? Why did God design diversity in sex and gender? And I hope that motivates you to keep listening on through some of the difficult territory we're going we're to dive into in a moment. Um, The the path may be bumpy as we go through, but actually where we're going to end, the picture we're going to end with, um, a glorious picture of God being reflected in humanity. His image being reflected by men and women, especially in their relationships um, in marriage. It is a glorious picture. Something far more glorious than the make everyone the same androgyny that our culture currently favors so honor the Creator as well as minimizing offense to the culture let's dive in I'm gonna I'll say up front um, I'm not gonna answer all the questions you have even on this passage let alone on the wider topic of men and women we have a couple of seminars coming up later this term uh, on men and women. So please do come to those and, and store up questions now. That's one thing you can do with this aching white space on the back of the handout. You can scribble questions. Uh, feel free to ask them straight afterwards to me um, in person or, or come to those um, seminars. But right now, we need to get our grips with verse 3. I think verse 3, in lots of ways, is the key principle. Paul starts it saying, I want you to understand that. This is what he wants us to get our heads around. We're going to spend a bit of time here um, to get a run-up. Verse 2 has begun a section all about when Christians come together. So all of 11 to 14 is about the Corinthians gathering as church. Next week we're going to see a disaster over the Lord's Supper. That's a, that's a, a church practice. They're not doing right. Actually, here, verse 2, it seems like things are relatively positive, like they might be getting the practice right. But Paul doesn't just want them to to do the practice. He wants them to understand the theology behind it. Verse 3, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is our first big point. Understand that everyone has A head. I mean, that may sound obvious. Obviously, you have this head. But you have another head. Everyone has a head. Notice, if you just look at verse 3, there is a bit of a surprising order. Paul's not working kind of top-down through that chain. He's not working bottom-up through the chain. Just look at it again. He picks a man and says, Understand, you have a head, Christ. He picks a woman and says, Understand, or a wife, Understand, you have a head. Incidentally, the word in the Greek could mean woman or wife, just as the word for man could mean man or husband. You decide by context. The translators of our church Bibles have decided because of context that it is probably talking about wives in their headgear. We'll understand why later. I think that's probably a good judgment call. So, man, you have a head, Christ. Wife, you have a head, your husband. But then, to ensure we don't jump to misunderstandings, as if to have a head implies some kind of inferiority or lesser value, he then picks Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, and says, He has a head. God the Father. Let me put that on the screen. Um, Oops, forwards. Uh, I'll try and make this bit at least clear. Uh, A man has a head. A wife has a head. Christ has a head. That is key. If we can understand that, and not just understand it, but accept it. Accept it as a good thing, part of God's good pattern. Well, we'll be a long way to understanding the rest of the passage. And indeed, um, wider teaching in the New Testament uh, about um, the the pattern of male-female relationships. It's worth saying, as you go through the New Testament, that... um, (coughs) that the apostles apply male headship into families particularly. That is, home families, husbands and wives with their children, and the church family, the household of God. Christians would disagree if it, it extends further than that, but I, I, I'm not keen to go beyond what the Bible is clear on, on this. We've still got the question, that's men and women, I think it's right f- to apply it particularly here to husbands and wives. We've still got the question, what does the word head actually mean? What does the word head actually mean? This is debated um, a lot, a lot's been written about it. Uh, What does head mean? We mustn't just jump to conclusions by what what would I mean by head. So we know about heads of companies or head teachers or heads of the board. Um, But we've got to ask what did Paul actually mean when he wrote it? It's a good question. One suggestion you may be aware of is is perhaps the word head means source in the way we might talk about um, the head of a river could be the kind of source of a river. Uh, And maybe you could could say, well, verse 8 does talk about woman coming from man as Adam's rib is taken to to, uh, make Eve. Um, So maybe it's just a kind of source word, not particularly about authority, as we might think with head of the board. Um, It's worth saying um, there's been recent research checking that. Is that actually a legitimate use of that word? Um, a scholar, Wayne Grudem, you can look up uh, his work uh, on this. He did a survey, apparently, of 2,336 places where the world was used across 1,200 years of literature inside and outside the Bible and found that although the word can mean source, if you look at the context in which it's applied to human relationships, it never does. One commentary puts it like this. In over 50 examples of the expression person A is the head of person B, found in ancient Greek literature. Person A has authority over person B in every case. Which is quite decisive in terms of wider usage. But, actually, it's not enough, because sometimes Bible words have Bible meanings. And so we still have to ask the question, how is it used in Scripture? And particularly, how does Paul use the word? What does he mean by head? So please, keep a finger in 1 Corinthians and flick forward with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we'll start. We were in this book of the Bible um, last year. Ephesians chapter 1. Which in chapter 1 we'll speak of the headship of Christ. And in chapter 5 we'll, we'll speak of um, husbands as head in a family context. Uh, it's page 976, sorry, if you're in a church Bible. Ephesians 1 verse 22. This is talking about Jesus, the, the risen Jesus being put Verse 21, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion. Verse 22, and God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. No doubt Jesus is a source of life to us, but in that context it is clear that he is head over the church. Flick on to Ephesians chapter 4. Verses uh, 22 to 24. Sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Ephesians five twenty-two. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything, to their husbands. So again, there the, the word head being used in the context of authority. Headship and submission roles are clear and explicit in Ephesians 5 in the family. At which point for some, no doubt, again, the, the questions and the hackles are rising, like, what? how can that be fair? Really? Today? How dare the Bible kind of justify male dominance, provide an excuse for husbands bullying their wives or or kind of lording it over their households like some kind of medieval feudal baron. Actually, just before we turn back to 1 Corinthians, read on one more verse to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The job of head in a marriage or a family household, and actually the job of elder in a church family household, the household of God, is not to lord it over others. Not to kind of assert our authority, flex our muscles, bully others into submission. Not at all. That is not biblical headship. The job description for a head is to be like Jesus, to love like Jesus. And how did Jesus love? Well, he gave himself in service of others. He led in a loving way for the good of those he had responsibility to care for. I wonder how many husbands and fathers, as well as this one, here tonight, need that reminder again. You are the head of your household your head, Jesus, says it. But how you exercise that headship is not for your own self-service, but in loving sacrifice for the good of your family. It means it may, it may be time, again, to repent of selfishness or of abdicating responsibility, whether it's leading the family in Bible reading or prayer or just godly priorities as you shape family life. Or just in service, giving ourselves in service, not just assuming our wives will pick up the pieces. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11. And hopefully now we we have a kind of better sense of that word head. I know we're spending a lot of time in verse 3. Don't panic. It won't be the same for every verse. Uh, To be a head, according to the Bible, is not like being a head of a company or a head of a board or a boss. Is to be a head like Jesus, that is, a loving, self-sacrificial leader, one who puts the eternal needs of his people ahead of his comfort, his ease, even his life. But there is responsibility and authority there. This is what biblical headship is. Strikingly, therefore, if you just look at that picture on the screen, both men and women, husbands and wives, can look to Jesus as our model. Let me put some arrows on to show you that. The husband uh, sees the model of Christ. Christ as head should shape how I operate as a head. Likewise, wives can look at how Christ submits to the Father as a model. Christ is our model either way. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, your will be done, even as he grapples to to willingly submit himself to his, his Father. Now, there may be, again, a hundred questions of how does that pattern actually work out in a family or in a church. Sadly, now is not the time to answer them because the rest of the verses in in chapter 11 are going to focus on a very particular area, and I do want to give it some time. Um, But again, those seminars will be discussing those kind of questions. I hope, though, one thing it is important to say is that I hope it's already clear that any kind of physical or verbal or emotional abuse or bullying from husbands to wives, is absolutely anti-biblical. It should not be allowed to go unchallenged. And it sometimes does in a church family. Please, if you, if you are in that situation, or wonder if you are, please speak to someone, speak to an elder. The husband being head of a wife is no excuse to, be, to get away with harshness, meanness, bullying, or just simple selfishness. Because every man is under a head. We have a head to honour too. So, dishonouring our head. That's where verse 4 takes us into. But it takes us into a very specific area of dishonouring our head. Uh, It talks about... um, Let me just click that on. It talks about how the way I dress my physical head can dishonour my relational head. Does that make sense? What I do with my physical head dishonour my relational head in the man's case Christ in this passage, in the the wife's case her husband Um, now we still don't know exactly what the covering is was it a veil, a headscarf, a hairstyle we're not sure, there's huge debates about that, but notice the fundamental issue the heart issue that Paul wants these Corinthians to think about is when I'm dressing for church think about someone other than just myself you notice that? Think about your head. Think about how it reflects on others. We've seen that with food. It's not just what I fancy to eat in chapters 8 to 10. It's what would be good for others. How do I use my freedom for others? Also here, how does what I do with my physical head uh, speak about my relational head? Notice the advice for men and women is different. Opposite, in fact. First of all, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. I've put those on the screen. The men don't pray with head covered. The women don't pray with head uncovered. When they're put side by side, at the very least, it's clear that Paul's trying to maintain a gender distinction in this church, in Corinthian dress. Um, We're going to come back to that because I know that... um, Gender difference is a huge area of discussion and pressure and criticism in our culture at the moment. So we will come back to that broad issue of gender differences. But first, let's zoom in on these specific instructions, because I think there is some cultural background that's helpful. It's not absolutely certain, but I think it is helpful. Why is it in verse 4 that a man covering his physical head dishonors Christ, his relational head? It's helpful to know at this point, as the Corinthians themselves would have known, that men offering pagan sacrifices in Roman culture used to pull their toga over their heads, as in covering your head was associated with pagan worship, the kind of pagan worship that chapter 10 has just told the church not to participate in. So men, don't cover your head like a pagan when praying or prophesying in church. That would dishonor Christ. But what about the women? Because, after all, surely they wouldn't want to be associated with pagan worship either. Again, it's difficult to be 100% sure. It does seem that respectable married Roman women in public would not wear their hair loose and down, but have it covered, whether with a shawl or kind of tied up neatly on top. Uh, People disagree. But those who did have their hair down might risk being seen as kind of available for sex like the temple prostitutes that may sound a bit extreme for a chapter on meeting together as church but look at the stark language of verse 5 every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head were shaven for if a wife will not cover her head she should cut her hair short but since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair off short or shave her head let her cover her head It is the talk of kind of scandalous signals being sent. It is disgraceful. In other words, just like in some cultures around the world today, there was a piece of headgear that married women wore which signaled they were off-limits, so to speak. They were maintaining faithfulness to their husbands. And to not wear that whilst praying and prophesying in church risked causing scandal and offence both to the culture around and to bring shame to the husbands. I wonder if you have a question at that point, though. It's so scandalous. I mean, why were they even tempted? Like, why would they be thinking, I'm going to take this off? Good question. I think two possible good answers are one, we have already seen in Corinth uh, a uh, real stress on Christian freedom. Twice we've heard them say, All things are lawful. Like, of course, I'm free. It's possible that they felt now we're all one in Christ every single distinction between men and women should be disregarded. After all, it's just a silly Roman custom. I mean it's just patriarchal nonsense. It's not appropriate for the children of God to put up with kind of social norms like that. Didn't Jesus himself teach that in heaven we'll be like angels and not marry anymore? It could be that. I think much more simply it might just be Because these churches were often meeting in houses, it wasn't always clear, is this a public space or a private space? Do we need to follow the gender conventions for kind of public dress and modesty? I think that's just as likely. But either way, Paul wants them to think about the the scandal, the dishonor their dress might cause. Think about your head. Men, don't dishonor Christ by worshipping like a pagan. Don't send mixed signals in your dress. And wives, don't dishonor your husband, sending mixed signals about modesty or faithfulness or undermining his headship in your dress. Indeed, verse 10 does speak about a wife having a symbol of authority on her head. Again, it's not straightforward. The words symbol of aren't actually there. It's literally just um, the, that's why the wife ought to have authority on her head. Um, but I think probably it is, it is saying that this particular um, uh, head, headgear, whatever it was, was a mark of uh, I, I'm, I'm willingly submitting to my husband's authority. At which point, I think it's clear that Whether it's a man wearing a hat in church, if you see that, I don't think you think, "Uh uh-oh, pagan worshipper. Or well, Josie was leading up here um, uh, without any covering on her hair. I don't think we suddenly thought, wow, immodesty. And Josie and I did have a conversation before she, knowing she was leading for this passage, she did ask me um, what was appropriate. Do you see that it's not the same signals being sent in our culture. Let me give you an example, um, partly to give your brains a breather for a moment, because I'm afraid more to come after this. Just an example, um, when I worked in London, I went to lots of weddings and helped with, with a few of them, and if a whole load of men turned up wearing knee-high white kind of stocking socks things, and what looked like skirts, and a kind of, I don't know, metal bum bag of some sort, kind of sitting in front, if that happened down there, let me just say, it would have been confusing. I wouldn't have known what to make. Um, and it would have actually, uh, outside it, if you didn't know that actually it was probably just a Scottish wedding, um, outside of those conventions, genuinely it might have been confusing to a different culture. That might have confused in terms of gender distinctions. Up here, it's completely different, isn't it? Actually quite macho from what I can tell. A kind of manly expression, um, uh, I think. I don't really know. I'm, I'm slightly out of my cultural depth, to be honest. Um, LAUGHTER the point is, that's the point though. Do you see? Different time, different place, different culture, different signals. I'm not. There are um, one or two women in this church family who would feel conscience-bound to wear a hat in church. There are certainly many other Christian women in different traditions who would feel like that. And it's important we don't just ride roughshod over people's consciences. Remember chapter 8, don't wound a brother's conscience or sister's conscience. So I'm not going to say you must kind of not do that. But I genuinely think it is not sem- it's not marking the same signals, the same concerns as this. Um, it be a good thing to think about, are there ways we dress or ways we act or ways we speak or ways we operate as a church family that do either blur the boundaries in terms of uh, gender or kind of undermine patterns in marriage? It would be good to think about that. Personally, I'm not sure there is a direct equivalent in terms of dress. I don't think wedding rings are because men and women wear them. Um, some would say surnames, if, if a wife takes her husband's surname. But you can't see that when you come to church. So something to ponder. But actually, I want us to, to step back to the bigger issue for our kind of final um, few minutes together. Because um, remember, Paul's big command, back in verse 3, was to understand God's pattern, to understand that God has arranged it, that everyone has a head and to understand how it works out differently for men and women, particularly for husbands and wives. And of course, that difference, that creational difference between men and women is one of the things so under pressure, under challenge in our culture at the moment. After all, in this me generation, or the idea that anyone else would define me, that could shape me, that God might tell me who I am rather than me defining myself. It's radically countercultural. And so, for our remaining time, I just want to address that issue, as I think Paul does in verses 7 to 13. I think he steps back to God's original pattern in creation. So, take a deep breath for our final big question Aren't gender roles and differences between men and women just social constructs? And the simple big answer is no. They're not just social constructs. They're expressed in different ways in different cultures, but both biological sex difference and some gender role differences are not just invented by human beings. They're given by God. Indeed, we've already said, seen from verse 3 that they are a reflection, an echo of uh, Trinitarian relationships, the ordering of the Father and the Son, a unity that has difference, an equality that has headship. And from verse 7, Paul looks back to Genesis 1-2, to two, which we read earlier in the service, to point out that even in God's original creation, it's so hard to, for us to kind of picture this because we see all the abuses that have come in since the fall, but even in God's original creation, uh, God did have a pattern for men and women. Let me say three brief things about that pattern as Paul draws them up, draws them out from Genesis one to two. Firstly, total equality of value. You see this both in original creation and in salvation, the church, the new creation. Um, firstly, equality of value. We saw that in Genesis 128. Don't worry to turn there. God makes humanity in his image, male and female he makes them. Both men and women are both equally made in the image of God. And I need to say that, and Paul does believe that, because verse 7, you might, make, you might think, Paul's saying, the man's in the image of God and the woman's not. Let me just read it. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And so He doesn't say, but woman's not the image of God, or not, but woman's the image of the man. No, they're both the image of God. But the contrast is uh, to whom you uh, cast glory, honor or dishonor, as we've been seeing uh, think about your head. So they're both made in the image of God. And likewise in the church, both are equally saved. Some of us will know the, the verse in Galatians 3.28, it may have been rumbling through your head as a question, uh, where, where Paul says, same Paul, there is neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile. And that is in the context of Who are Abraham's children? Who are the inheritors of God's promises? Who gets all the blessings of God? Well, there's no distinction. Total equality. In creation and in salvation, men and women are absolutely equal value. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that there are not different roles. There's a genuine difference in roles. I think it's hard to express how radical that first point would be in lots of the cultures the Bible was written into, this radical equality. It's one of the shocking things when you see how lovingly and with such respect the Lord Jesus treats women. It was counter-cultural. Think of the Samaritan woman in John 4. But in our culture, I think the radical thing is that you could have equality, genuine, absolute equality, and have difference of roles. I think for lots of us, we've become so wedded to, I am what I do, that if I don't do a certain role, if I'm, uh, therefore uh, I'm kind of not of the same value as, as that person. But, but Paul believes in the equality of men and women, Genesis 1.28. He wrote Galatians 3, there's neither male nor female, when it comes to being a son of God. But nevertheless, he does speak of ordering of roles. Look at verse 8. This is a a reason um, for it about the origin of men and women. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. That's referring to the moment where Eve is made from Adam's rib. Um, And verse 9, this is a point about purpose. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, that's a verse you can really easily misunderstand, so let me say a moment about that. Um, uh, It's easy to read that deeply kind of chauvinistic way. It sounds a little bit like Eve was just created kind of to do whatever man fancied, you know, kind of just Adam's plaything or Adam's slave. Uh, And to be honest, the practice of some men, even some Christian men and husbands, uh, looks like they think that as well. But when you read Genesis 2... Adam already had a task. He was under a head. God had already told him what to do, um, to to look after the garden, to fill the earth and subdue it. And when Eve was introduced as a helper, it wasn't to help Adam pick up the newspapers or to fetch his slippers. (laughs) Eve was a helper in the great task God had given, to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, tend the garden. Eve was to help Adam glorify God in service, which is what marriage is about. So there are genuine differences in roles. But the final principle, which comes in verse 11 of our passage um, in 1 Corinthians, is that nevertheless there's necessary interdependence. Just look at verse 11. Just in case the the men were getting kind of... um, uh, a bit puffed up, we came first. Kind of, if it wasn't for us, if it wasn't for that rib, you, you wouldn't really exist, women. Well, verse 11. Um, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And so a woman in that conversation could quite easily say back, if it wasn't for a woman, you wouldn't exist. It's just true. It's the way God has arranged it mutual interdependence, necessary interdependence. God designed sex and gender differences such that we'd all have to acknowledge we need each other. This is what uh, humanity is supposed to be. It's actually the only way humanity can fulfill the function of um, subduing the earth, of being fruitful and multiplying. Now we need to come to a close. I'm aware time has already gone. Let me draw some threads together. What I'm saying from 1 Corinthians 11 is, while we may not face precisely the same cultural question about covering our heads, because in this culture, what's on your head doesn't send the same signals, nevertheless, the issue about how men and women feature in God's creation is live contested and the bible's teaching on it is transcultural rooted as it is in god's nature and god's good design for creation god wants differences between men and women to be reflected in the family household and the church household the household of god the church family lots more in terms of how to um apply that and cash that out on the ground when we get to those seminars But as we close, I just want to point out one thing. I think it's very easy to look at the start of chapter 11 as a kind of awkward bit, a kind of hurdle we need to get through before we get to the interesting stuff about the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts in chapters 12 to 14. Here's something that's really struck me. Those three headings, total equality, genuine difference, necessary interdependence, are all true of spiritual gifts. We all have different gifts, but they come from one source. There's total equality. You're not better as a person if you've got a certain gift. Total equality. And yet there's genuine difference in what those gifts are and their roles in the church. Paul could even talk about higher gifts as an order, a pattern. And yet there's necessary interdependence. The body needs each other. An eye can't say to a foot, I don't need you because you're not an eye. So here's something amazing, God has designed gender difference and the way a church body works with different gifts, both to show us the glory of unity and diversity, the glory of working together in an order whilst being totally united in our value It's extraordinary. And it reflects God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see, those three headings are true of the Trinity. Total equality of value. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. No less God. Genuine difference in roles. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is not either of them. You can't just swap them. Necessary interdependence. Without the son, a father wouldn't be a father. Without Eve, Adam was not good. Only man and woman are the image of God on this planet. It's absolutely amazing. Gender is not some awkward thing we need to kind of tiptoe past. It is one part of the amazing reflection of God's glory in his creation And I pray that as a church family, and especially as we go on to think about other areas uh, of of gathering together as a church family, I pray that we will come to love our diversity and use it for mutual benefit and God's glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our culture teaches us to be autonomous, to just think about me and who I want to be. And yet your word and your creation pattern teaches us that we need each other, that we should value each other, and that in the differences you have put into your creation, there is real joy and beauty and reflection of your nature. And so we pray, Father, in amongst all the questions we have, We pray that you would help us as a church family to operate in a way, to love and serve each other in a way, to exercise our responsibilities in headship, in submission, in all of these areas. We pray you would help us to do it in a way that honors you and honors each other and so brings great glory to the Lord Jesus. Amen.